Hello, everyone. We have been so excited by the growth our podcast has experienced since its launch. The support we've received has been incredible, and we want to take a moment to thank you all and ask a small favor of you. We produce every aspect of this show ourselves during the small downtime we have from our day jobs. We ask that you take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. The more listeners that do this, the more exposure we get, allowing our audience to grow. The more we grow, the more time and energy we can invest in maintaining and improving the production. We love hearing from you, and we thank you in advance for supporting the show's growth. Now go enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Crime Bar. Grab a drink and enjoy the show. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Anna. Um, I felt a little bad because when I found out that you were doing a shorty that um, takes place ultimately or involves churches, Mm -hmm. as does mine, and we're unintentionally kind of... People are going to think we're like Satan worshipers if no, we're shitting on churches. No, I, is it is your church story like it's are religious we on, heavy? But is that like it looks poorly on the church? It's or? just on the principles, like the people that attend it. Some people, not it's all. Not, okay, all people just can these suck. People, just these people specifically. And I'm going to find myself making fun of people, and I'm not making fun of religion. I'm making fun of these specific people that happen to be hypocrites. I feel oh. like that's fair to say. Sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. There are pl- Okay. We can just go ahead and admit there are plenty of religious people who are total hypocrites. 100%. Yeah. One- okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> then I feel good good to go and be bold <laughs> with my opinions. <laughs> okay. So what is the story? Um, I'm sharing the story of Michael Reese. And I got a ton of this information from the Hulu series Southern Gothic, which is like one of my favorite little docu-series now. Oh, yeah. I'm getting a lot of my stuff Yeah, from didn't them. you do another one from there? Yeah, I think a couple of weeks ago I covered one that I learned from. I like it because they cover cases that I've, I've never heard of. Yeah, I hadn't and heard of the other one or this one. Ones that just don't get that much attention. Yeah. And oh, so I, I love I like that. that they focus on it. I'm a sucker for anyone that, that covers a story that just isn't well known. That I've never heard of before. And yeah. like we pride ourselves on, you know, we know a lot Hearing of, all of them. <laughs> we know a really, lot about murder. But really, we don't know any yeah, of them. It's just getting started, unfortunately. Okay, so on February 18th, 2015, at around 7 p.m., like 7.05 to be exact, <laughs> Jefferson County Sheriff's Office received a call. The call was coming from Morris, Alabama, and a frantic woman was on the line. She explained to the dispatcher that she had just gotten home, and as she was walking through the door, she could just tell that something was very wrong. She said that she didn't know if her house had been broken into or burglarized because her coffee table was flipped on its side, and just the place overall was a total mess. It looked like someone had ransacked the place. Okay. She also said that her husband was nowhere to be found. She didn't explain that if she went in the house and searched for him or if she just like called out to him, she noticed the place was a mess, ran outside, called 911. The woman on the phone was a woman named Cindy Henderson Reese, and she lived right across the street from the Morris Police Department. Yet she was calling the police department that was located 20 minutes away. Wait, mm. so she didn't just dial 911? <laughs> she like called the like, non-emergency She specifically line? called the dispatch for Henderson. 
Oh, I, I guess I should have, that, I should, I always say called 911. Like that in my head, I'm like the emergency hotline. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah the well, dispatch. That's, that's the thing is if you dial 911, it goes to the nearest, you know, whatever mm-hmm. police department is near you. But every police department has a non-emergency line. Yes. So she called the non-emergency line. For specifically a place that Somewhere was 20 away. minutes away versus right across the street. Like stone's throw. That's wild. Like just take a quick walk <laughs> and you're right okay. there. Deputy? Okay, so she's suspect. Yeah, immediately. I'm like, yeah. God, woman, Cindy. Yeah. Come on, lady. Deputy District Attorney Joe Hicks recalled that the Jefferson County officers responding to the call found Cindy standing on the front lawn of her home. They could see that she was very upset, but they were able to communicate and reason with her pretty easily. They asked her to sit in the back of the cop car while they went inside to search the house. They have no idea what's going on in there. They just know that Cindy is frantic and repeatedly telling them that she can't find her husband. You have to assume at this point that there's someone inside and that it could potentially be very dangerous. Sure. So they make their way from room to room, guns drawn. Eventually, they find themselves in the back of the house. That is where they find Cindy's husband, Michael, on the floor. The officers had grown up with Michael Reese, so they immediately knew it was him. Oh, no. It's like a small small town town. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's like they went to high school together. Oh, that's awful. Michael Reese was born on July 5th, 1974, making him a cancer. He was born and raised in Morris, Alabama. And true to being a cancer, he loved people and people loved him. He was easygoing. He had great manners. He was very well liked by everyone in town. He was a goofball through and through, and he loved keeping things fun and lighthearted. He really cared about what people thought about him, and just like being respected and liked by all meant everything to him. Michael's sister Tiffany said that if he wasn't joking around, then something was really wrong. Oh, so he was just like fun all the time. Yeah, lighthearted man. He had an amazing relationship with his family, and he remained close friends with all of his childhood friends. He got married pretty young to his college sweetheart, but that ended in divorce. That didn't get him down, though, because he was a hopeless romantic, and he always had this gut feeling that love would come and he would remarry again. Morris, Alabama was one of those towns where everyone knew each other. If you were born there, you're most likely not leaving. They called it like generational, where it's like your grandma, your great grandma. It's like everyone stays in Morris. Yeah. It was like a really big deal when the town got their one stoplight and then eventually it was like bustling because they had one restaurant and then one hardware store. (laughs) People were like, uh, Michael's sister was like, that's when we knew we made it. I was just going to say, we made it. She had to set the humor about it. Church was everything to the people in Morris. Every Wednesday and every Sunday, church was the place to be. Michael was very involved. Um, He worked at the church. He went to church every week. And therefore, he was looking for a solid Christian woman to marry. Yeah. In 2008, Michael met Cindy Henderson, and it was love at first sight. Church was everything to Cindy as well, and she seemed to check all of Michael's boxes. According to TheHeavy.com, Cindy had been married as well, but her husband committed suicide and I did some digging and I couldn't find any details. I wasn't sure if it was like a Harold Henthorne type situation, oh, okay. but nothing came of it. So it was probably just, unfortunately, a suicide. Cindy and Michael had, it was unfortunately as if murder was like a better outcome. <laughs> My God. You know what I mean? I knew, I knew what you <laughs> yeah. meant. Don't worry. She was innocent in that. 
Cindy and Michael had their first date at this hamburger place called Milo's and all of his friends were giving him crap because it's really casual. It's like a junk drive through super casual hamburger place. And I was going to say it sounds real cash. It's like not a place you'd like take someone on a first date. But Michael, honestly, I would love. Oh, it. that's for us. For us, it's ideal. And for Michael and and Cindy, it was as well. They oh, love good. some Milo's. Okay, good. So they went. They had their first date, and it was perfect. And I'm gonna be honest. I remember coming out to the kitchen with you, and I'm like, this documentary is really throwing me off with the way oh. that these people pronounce Milo's. <laughs> and I keep as I was like reading through it uh, before recording, I was like, I couldn't stop saying Mulos and Milo's. <laughs> really? Because these people cannot stop saying we went to Milo's or Mulos. It's like it's just Milo's. <laughs> It's not Milos. It's not Mulos. Yeah. Milos. But I found myself messing it up because of it. Yeah. So it's Milos. Milos, baby. M-I-L-O-S. Well, yes. Yeah, well, but Milo, Milo owns it. Yeah. yeah. The name Milo. Yes. So everyone recalled them being completely smitten with each other. It was very clear to everyone that this was not going to be a casual thing. This was like marriage type stuff. Oh, that's the so serious sweet. business. Yeah. Michael and Cindy got married on September 5th, 2009. It was a perfect day full of love. It was exactly what weddings are all about. And their friends and family were so happy that they had found true love, especially after the first time it didn't work out for either of them. It was clear like this was meant to be. Yeah. Michael was a Methodist. And soon after the marriage, he got baptized in the Baptist church. And he did this for his wifey because religion was a huge element of their relationship and he wanted to be able to attend the same church as her. Oh, that's sweet. It's really sweet. It's a sweet gesture. They went every single Wednesday and Sunday and their church family sort of became their chosen family. Six years later, on February 18th, 2015, Michael was found dead in his home. Cindy called friends and family as soon as she got off the phone with 911 Michael hadn't been found at this point, but she wanted to let the people close to them know that something bad had happened. She just wasn't sure what yet, which I thought was kind of, I I mean, I don't know how I would handle that situation, but it'd be weird to call up the parents and be like, something's off, but like, I don't know what it is. Like he could have been out out of the house. That's someone who knows something like they know. Yes. Not to like, I'm just going to go ahead and take a guess. Yeah. I feel like she knows exactly where her husband is and whatever condition he is in. And so conscience. then she's yeah. So then instead of waiting for the police to just find whatever it is there is to find, yeah, she said hold out thirty more seconds. Yeah, she's just going to go ahead and start calling. I could see if something horrible happened like that, I would definitely call someone and be like, I think my house is broken and my pe- yeah. the police are in there right now. But I, it didn't. That didn't seem to be the tone of it though, because I understood that where I'd yeah. be like, call my mom, be like, I'm freaking out, what's happening, calling yeah. you. But this but it seemed would, more like notifying people. Yeah, in no, a weird. I, that's weird. I know. I didn't like it. So even though Morris PD was a stone's throw from the house, the Jefferson County PD took over because they were larger and they had more resources. And during the investigation, detectives could not find any signs of forced entry. But because this is a tiny, very safe town, people often left their doors unlocked. So there was a possibility that a physical break-in wasn't even necessary. Sure. They could have just... Open the right door. In. Yeah. And the back door was found wide open. So it's assuming that that was like an escape route. Okay. The living room was a mess. Paper thrown everywhere. Table flipped on its side. And there was a bag from that hamburger place, Milo's, sitting right by the door. Like someone had walked in with it and then immediately just put it down. Cindy- is, it, it, is it just me or is it weird to come home at 7 p.m. and think someone broke into your house? 
Well, it's it, like, is it, it already dark at that time of year? In or? my head, I was thinking, oh yeah, yeah, it would have been dark. Oh, because February, I think yeah. you said? Yeah, it okay. would be dark still. But what I was thinking was if it was someone that knew them, they would know that they were at church. Everyone is at church on Wednesday night. Oh, so it's okay. like, that's like a perfect opportunity to break in. Oh, okay. Because so, I'm like thinking like, if you're going to break into a house, I do it like, like at 11 a.m. when everyone's at work or something. Midday's the time. <laughs> midday's the time to do it, you guys. <laughs> if you're if you're wondering, that's the way to go. I would think 3 a.m. when people are asleep or midday or early, you know, late yeah, morning. Yeah, it just seems like a str- it seems like that's when everyone would be coming home. Unless you know for a fact that they're going to be at, at yeah. church until 7 yeah. sort of thing. I'm just already poking holes in this. Oh, yeah, as you should be. <laughs> it's not It's not a strong story, in my opinion. <laughs> or they're not strong they're, they're, no, Yeah, they're, that's I mean, not, not my writing skills, them. <laughs> no, your writing skills are great. They okay. <laughs> uh, so anyways, um, Cindy and Michael were in the process of adding a room onto the back of the house. They were hoping to have children soon, and it was going to be the future baby's room. That is where Michael's dead body was found. He had been shot in the back of the head. There was no exit wound, which meant that the bullet was still lodged in his head. Officers assumed that he had been shot while he was facing the wall and probably didn't even see the intruder sneaking up behind him. One of Michael's good friends said that when he arrived on the scene, he immediately knew Michael was dead because there was no sense of rushing. The officers were just were just walking around instead of running. Yeah, there there's was no like, urgency. There was no panic or urgency, yeah. exactly. And there weren't any gurneys or... Um, yeah. They weren't entering or there's exiting a, the house. There's a difference. They just knew it was concrete. Yeah. When Michael's father and sister showed up, they were given the horrible news as well. His father collapsed to the ground sobbing and said, this will kill your mother. Michael's mother was currently battling cancer and she had just had her chemo treatment the day before. So she was already very weak. And Michael was her firstborn. They were incredibly close. Uh, Michael's sister, Tiffany, was the one to give her mother the news. And she said, your first child is dead. And that's it. It's just awful. Oh, that's so awful. Cindy was taken to the police station for questioning. As we all know, it's crucial to look at the partner first. And as far as officers knew, she was the last person to see her husband alive. Cindy told Sergeant Street that she and Michael had gotten out of bed later than usual that morning because it was so cold out. She told the sergeant that she was the one to hit snooze, like in this tone, like she did something really naughty. She was like, oh, and I was the one that hit snooze that morning and like shrugged her shoulders as if she'd done something super bad. I'm like, oh my God, ew. I'm the one who allowed us to sleep eight minutes longer. I'm the bad girl that hit snooze. <laughs> She said that Michael dropped her off at work at the courthouse in Birmingham and then headed to work himself. And she worked in the like payroll division at the courthouse. Okay. She recalled that he must have been about an hour late because she didn't get dropped off until 7.30 a.m. And I'm like, can you imagine getting somewhere at 7.30 a.m. and being like an hour late? Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> That's a sin, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Yeah. Um, Michael picked Cindy up from work at 5.00. And then they checked on her mother before going to church like they did every Wednesday night. After church, they went through the drive-thru at their favorite spot, Milo's, and then went home. Cindy claims that she wasn't hungry for dinner yet, so she decided to go run to the Piggly Wiggly. She bought lunch meat so that she could pack a lunch for Michael for the next day, and she wasn't sure if he had orange juice or not, so she just like grabbed a jug of orange juice as well before heading home. And her receipts included timestamps and her store checked out. She got home a little after 8 p.m. and that's when she saw the mess inside and called the dispatch. 
and I'll be honest, um, I was really confused because or the documentary said 8 p.m. is when she called yeah. 911, but then originally when I f- it said 7.05, so I don't so know what happened two, there. They but said two different times. Yes, okay. unfortunately. Well, whatever hour, it was at the top of the hour. Yeah, it was, it was around 8. Okay. So investigators were curious about any other individuals that might have had access to their home. She said the contractors that were working on the additional room were the only other people besides for Michael and herself that had access. Cindy said that she had checked up on all of the men um, working at the house and that they had great references and she knew they were really good men. During questioning, she was asked if she happened to own a pistol. She was like, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. I keep that gun in the bedroom. It was a 38, and it was always kept on the gun rack in the room that she shared with her husband. The detective that was interviewing her said that they didn't see any guns on any racks. And now that they know that this gun is missing... It is assumed that this is the gun that was used to kill Michael. Yeah. And just to give her the benefit of the doubt at this point, I did see photos and it's like a, a rack that would have been easily accessible to anyone walking into the home. So it wasn't wasn't secured? locked up or anything. It was like a like a proud, proud gun owner um, rack situation where it was just kind of like placed on top, like as if Ugh. like a like a rifle on a mantle type situation, oh, okay. but just in their bedroom. Okay. <laughs> I have some opinions. Anyways, anyways. Just some interior design opinions <laughs> yeah, on that, yeah. but whatever. On the um, overall energy of the room. Uh-huh. It didn't take long for the rumors to start spreading. One of the most common questions was, who would be dumb enough to murder someone that lived right across the street from a police department? Yeah, with a gun, no less. I know, and it's like there was no way that this was a random killing. Everyone knew that this killer must have known him, but Michael just wasn't the kind of man that had enemies. Everybody loved this guy. According to multiple Morris residents, this was the type of town where everyone stopped to talk to each other. Everyone knew each other's business. My worst nightmare. (laughs) Typical (laughs) small town. Sure. Quickly, there were murmurs of Cindy somehow being involved. There were questions about whether or not Cindy was the loyal, God-fearing woman that she claimed to be. I don't want to make you self-conscious, but it's so cute because you're like, Cindy. (laughs) Cindy. 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 Like you say it with so much sass. I don't like Cindy. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll take it down a notch. Cindy? Um, (laughs) No, before you know it, the whole town is buzzing. Like, you heard about her boyfriend, didn't you? And did you know that she's been spending a lot of time with the pastor at the church? (gasps) It's all anyone could talk about. What? And that is when all of the very dark secrets began to come out. Jeff Brown was the pastor of the church that Michael and Cindy frequented. In fact, he was the pastor that baptized Michael after their wedding. Oh, God. Cindy had no idea that the other members of Sardis Church were Sardis or Sardis Sardis Church were watching as closely as they were. According to a reporter that worked on the case, Cindy thought that she was a lot more sly than she really was. She wasn't the brightest crayon in the drawer for sure. And I, I read that or I heard her say that. And I'm like, I don't want to point fingers, but that's not even the saying. Like <laughs> you, can't, you can't insult someone's <laughs> intelligence and being like, she wasn't the brightest crayon in the drawer or in the bucket. And it's like, no. it's box. Yeah. <laughs> that's too bad. It's very ironic. Sergeant Street questioned Cindy about the supposed affair that she was having with Pastor Brown. According to Cindy, she was the worship leader, music director, and he was the pastor. And the next thing you know, they're in love. <laughs> That's how it would be sometimes. <laughs> I was like like a sinful romance novel. <laughs> Seriously. 
My personal favorite part of the documentary that I watched was um, one of the residents of Morris, and his name was Jerry Vincent, and he should be famous. Like he, he's a star. Okay. He like delivered the most epic one-liners. This wasn't his best, but I included quite a few because solid. He said, sinners go to church. You know, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I think the pastor's got to be held to a higher standard. <laughs> well, yeah. I, like, I think so too, Jerry. I agree. <laughs> There's no word of how it all came out, but Michael did find out about the affair at some point and his whole world was flipped and his whole world was flipped upside down. <laughs> His whole world was flips upside down. <laughs> his whole world was flipped upside down. Oh, that's so sad. But he didn't want to give up on his marriage. He oh. loved Cindy with all of his heart and he wanted to make things right with her. Oh, that makes... Oh. I know it makes it so much worse. It was very important to him to just start fresh, get the romance back on track. Oh. So they went on a few vacations that he planned to Disney World. Oh my god. Which is like the cutest most wholesome that is thing. So wholesome. Because like I was like I would have thought like Cancun or Cabo if I wanted to like take it up a notch heat wise. Yeah. But no, they were like Disney's what gets us going. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And they're like big Disney people on their wedding day. They even did like those Minnie and Mickey ears like oh. wedding themed ones. Oh, so. so this was really special to them. Oh yeah, Disney and church was like I think like the center point of their relationship. Yeah. According to Cindy, she was having sex with Pastor Brown up until the day she left on her trip to Disney World. Oh. But she also mentioned that Jeff wouldn't stop calling her throughout the trip and she couldn't even enjoy her vacation. Okay. Like this guy just could not stop hitting her up. All these men just like want Cindy. Oh, but she could just not answer and like not continue to have sex with him. You would, that's, that's what I would do. (laughs) I would just get on the rides. It'd just be like, no, Pastor, you can't keep calling me. Just focus on my, uh, what do you call your your lawfully wed? Your human. lawfully wedded husband. Yes. Michael believed in the fairy tale. He wanted the happily ever after, and he thought Cindy was his one true love. And unfortunately, Cindy didn't have the same level of commitment in any way. Sergeant Street asked her if she wanted to work things out, like genuinely, with Michael when he found out about the affair, and then they went to Disneyland, or Disney World, sorry. And she said, to be honest, I didn't know. Oh, so she's just going on this free vacation, pretending to want to make it work with him when she's like, I don't even know if I want to be with him. That's so shitty because you should just say that. Just communicate. Yeah, like just say that person. and then don't continue sleeping with the person you're having an affair with and then like give yourself an actual break from both parties so that you can figure out Do what you? it is that you want. Yeah, but like uh, that lady said, she's not the sharpest crayon in the in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> you almost said it correctly. Yeah, I know, but I caught myself. <laughs> So that is when uh, the sergeant asked her if she was the one that shot her husband. She goes, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I can't even shoot an animal when it's dying. Then why do you keep... That is the most rehearsed answer, though. Oh, for sure. In in small town Alabama, because I also can't picture shooting an animal, but it's much more normal there than here. But like the instant analogy of like to, to prove innocence is so guilty. Yeah, for sure. Like, no, suffice. Like, that will suffice for sure. No, No, I would not do that. Yeah. The next question was if she believed her lover, Pastor Brown, was capable of killing Michael. And she was like, of course not. He's a preacher. If he is capable (laughs) of sinning by banging one of his flock's wives. I literally made it Wait, is that what they're called? Flock's wives? Well, no, that's not right. Okay. (laughs) No. Uh Oh. 
Yeah, I don't no, know. No, you're called like your congregation is called your flock. Oh, and then I you. said you're one of your flock's wives, and then I realized that's not the that's not English. <laughs> one of your your church goers' wives. Yeah. Yes, I don't know what to call them. Just one of your church- patrons. One of your ch- members. Your one of your church members. One of your church members. One of your church members. Okay, I feel solid. He's, he's probably. I mean, no, I shouldn't say that. People who have affairs don't automatically mean <laughs> it. Doesn't automatically mean you can kill someone, but. No. But it me what but what I made a note of was you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Yeah, <laughs> that's like very high up in yeah. the rules. Everyone knows that, and we don't even know the Bible. I literally said with a star next to it. I'm not even religious, and I know that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though the affair and her responses were incriminating, there wasn't enough evidence to arrest her, so she was free to go. It was very important for the detectives to track down the contractor that was working on the Reese home at the time of the murder. Not only did they have access to the home. They're going to see that there's a gun sitting out on the rack and they're going to know Michael and Cindy's schedules. He's going to know when they come and when they go. The contractor told the officers that he was where he is every single Wednesday night. Church. The contractor and his employees were immediately eliminated as suspects. Pastor Jeff Brown needed to be brought in for questioning. Jeff said that he and Cindy met in August of 2013. He was married with children at the time. In March of 2014, Jeff and Cindy had declared their feelings for one another. Throughout 2014, the Brown family and the Reese family got very close. Cindy and Michael would babysit Jeff's kids all of the time. So like not only are they sneaking around and making love behind their partner's backs, but they're just friends with the other families. They're like mingling their families. It's like, is that part of the thrill for you to see like your secret man with your you're legally whatever to, your kids your with man. your husband yes. yeah it's like a sick twisted fantasy thing i i don't know a full-blown affair began and he decided to leave his wife jeff claimed that they never had sexual relations but cindy was like hell yeah we did and it started during the spring of 2014 oh my god <laughs> i have a tendency to believe cindy's version oh, but for re- sure <laughs> but regardless jeff filed for divorce and he said that he still loves cindy to this day Oh, how romantic. Did he leave his wife to be with Cindy? Yes. Oh, and so then it was on her to leave her husband. Exactly. That was the last step. Oh. (laughs) Which is even more predictable. Yeah. (laughs) When he was questioned about his whereabouts the night of the shooting, Jeff said he was in Oneota, which is about 30 miles away from Morris. I'm going to warn you, like, you're going to really hate him. (laughs) Like, I cannot wait to post this video of him getting questioned because he's sitting there with like his legs spread like in a V. Ew. And he's just like really chill in his chair and he has a stupid hat. I just wanted to smack the baseball hat off of his head the whole time. Sure. He was asked if he had a motive to kill Michael considering he was having an affair with his wife and he gets really arrogant and worked up and he goes, absolutely not. I'm a preacher with two kids, two kids and one on the way. Don't hate the sin. I mean, don't hate the sinner, hate the sin. He can't even say that He can't that even right. say his phrase right. And, oh he like just, and he gets really like aggressive and adamant. Oh, that's so transparent. So gross. When the sergeant told him that he thinks he or Cindy did it, he goes, well, I'm going to respectfully disagree. (laughs) Respect. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Helpful. Oh, okay. Then I guess we're done here. (laughs) Oh my God. On that note, (laughs) please go. What an idiot. And here's a Milo's gift card. (laughs) Once again, there wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest and he was released. Sitting and waiting for the PD to make an arrest was absolute torture for Michael's family because even though they knew in their hearts that Cindy had something to do with this, she was still his wife. She was the one that would make the call of where and when he was going to be buried. 
And that meant a lot to his family. Of course. Michael's father recalled looking her in the eye and saying, we don't think you did this. Which is, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine that. The authorities immediately noticed a few inconsistencies. According to Cindy's original statement, after church, they went to Milo's. And from there, they went home. uh, They went straight home with the food. This is when Cindy decided she needed to go to the grocery store to get some lunch meat. And I'm going to do my very best to get through what the shark, what the shark, oh my God, I can't even get through it. It's so bad. It's so bad. What are you saying? You're about to hear the funniest thing you've ever heard, or at least it was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Sergeant Street said, anybody, <laughs> and he's serious. I want to make it very clear. Okay. Anybody that lives in Alabama knows that if you, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do this. You got to do it. You got to deliver it really well. Don't look at me. Okay. Sergeant Street said, anybody that lives in Alabama knows that you have to eat Milo's hot, especially the fries. If they get cold, they're awful, but they're amazing when they're hot. And he is pissed. Like he is saying this, like everyone knows. <laughs> this is common knowledge. Then, then the narrator said, for the investigators that grew up in Alabama, this story did not make sense. <laughs> like it was nothing was based off evidence. It was the fact that she was not willing to eat her Milo's and she like ran an errand and didn't eat it piping hot. They were like, something's up. What? <laughs> something's up with Cindy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. And like during the same like two minutes, Michael's dad added, plus Michael's favorite lunch meat was Boar's Head, which you buy at Publix. And Publix is right across the street from Milo's. Like the eating, like it's all so food focused, yeah, which is but, hysterical to me. But I love that they're all doing their own investigative work. They're like, this is not add up. No, we know our Michael. Yeah. We know Cindy and her Milo's addiction. Yeah. She's eating them piping hot. Yeah. <laughs> it just blew me. It sent me over the edge. Because I kind of feel like that would be me. Like, cause I'm so oh, food sure. focused. Of You're course. like, Anna didn't have her bread and cheese of midday. Oh, like yeah. something's off. Heat it up. In the microwave? For 15 seconds? Something is really off. No, I totally, I totally get that. Little habits. Yeah. Even though a full-blown murder investigation is going on and they're the two main suspects, Jeff and Cindy continue to see each other. They did not sit well with the law enforcement and the people of Morris, Alabama. But unfortunately, you know, things not sitting right is not reason enough for an arrest. So Jefferson PD had to gather hard evidence. They took a look at Jeff and Cindy's phone records and records show that they were in constant communication every day, all day. They're either texting or making calls to each other. I don't know how they had time to do anything else. The logs are just, it's pathetic. Start to finish. Yeah. The day of Michael's murder at 6.57 PM, Jeff sent Cindy a text saying just three words. Keep me posted. On what? I know. I want to know. On what? We know. Well, yeah. Cindy and Michael would have still been in church at that time. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and really concretely say that the call was made at 8 because there's, because of everything. <laughs> no, it wasn't made at 7.05. Like originally stayed in the beginning. Okay. I apologize so thoroughly. The, so the documentary said it all started at yes. 7, but really it started at 8. And I blindly trusted. Yeah. Well, well, they're so good. So that's why I trusted them. They're the best. Anyways. At 7.02 p.m., Cindy called Jeff and just left the phone on while she was driving in the car with Michael. She had one of those Bluetooth headsets, like the devices. So Jeff is just in her ear while she's in the car with her husband having a conversation. There's receipts showing that they went through the Milo's drive-thru at 7.18 p.m., all while Jeff is listening in on the conversation. 
and he remained on the line until 7.32 p.m. So he was on it for 30 minutes. What? Just listening quietly. I don't know if it was to monitor her conversation with him or what. Okay. Or like tell her what to say or something. He was completely silent. Oh. I guess you wouldn't really know that, but according to the way they painted it, it was just that he wanted to listen in. Jeff had originally told Sergeant Strait that he was 30 miles away on the night of the murder, but phone records place him incredibly close to the Reese home, like if not in the home, based off of cell towers. Oh, God. On March 11th, 2015, Cindy was at work at the Jefferson County Courthouse. Jeff Brown picked Cindy up every single day in front of the courthouse so that they could have lunch together. That day, Sergeant Street stood outside the courthouse waiting for the couple to return from lunch. When Jeff spotted the sergeant, he decided to speed off. (laughs) Two patrol cars blocked Jeff's vehicle from the front and the back so that he could not get away. Officers raised their guns and dragged them out of the car. Wow. Cindy and Jeff were brought in and charged with the murder of Michael Reese. What? Cindy. (laughs) I like the shock. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) I thought you were actually trying to sell that surprise. I'm like, my God, (laughs) Ashley. (laughs) Uh, Cindy decided to use the money that she and Michael had saved up for the construction of like, you know, their future baby room (laughs) as her bond. So she was able to just walk. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. One morning, Cindy, like without being asked to, walked outside to her front yard to have a conversation with Jerry Vincent, the one with the good one-liners. Oh, yeah. And she told him, my lawyer said, I don't have anything to worry about. They can't prove anything. To which Jerry replied, there's an old law enforcement saying, first one to squeal gets the best deal. And I think you know someone that's squealing. (laughs) (laughs) My grandma was from Texas and she had the weirdest one-liners like that that are just like, it makes sense when you hear it in that accent. But then later when you say it, you're like, wait, what? And people in LA. It doesn't make any sense. I was literally made a note. I'm like, people in LA just don't talk like that. And it's such a shame. (laughs) Uh -uh. Storms are brewing. And guess what? Jerry Vincent was spot on about Pastor Brown squealing. Oh, In August of 2016, Jeff Brown pled guilty to receive a reduced charge for manslaughter. But the deal was he had to testify during Cindy's trial. And he goes ahead and throws his sweet little lady under the bus. (laughs) Oh, so he's not a very noble man of God. No, he's not. His values are all all, all the way out in left field. What a shock. (laughs) According to Jeff, he had been on the phone with Cindy like phone records showed. When Cindy and Michael got home from Milo's, Jeff stated that he heard a loud popping sound while he was listening quietly on the line. Later that night, Cindy wanted to meet up with Jeff at the gas station. That's when she handed him a 38 revolver to take with him. He drove away from that gas station and down rural Highway 78 so that he could dispose of the gun. The gun was never found, by the way. He never flat out said that Cindy murdered her husband, but he did make it clear that she must have been the one to do it. Yeah, he's if he's he's alluding. Well, I know. He's definitely alluding. Yeah. Cindy's trial began in January of 2017. Cindy stood her ground and said that she did not shoot and kill Michael. Michael's family and the people around town believe that Cindy is the one that pulled the trigger, while law enforcement believe that Jeff did. But the thing is, in Alabama, if two people are a part of a crime, they're going to both get convicted. So it ultimately did not matter who pulled the trigger. If there's intent to kill, it doesn't matter like who sealed the deal. The prosecution believed that Cindy shot her husband execution style after getting home from church. 
After killing Michael, she got into her car and drove to the Piggly Wiggly to buy some lunch meat. Can you imagine just like checking out and they're like, how's your night going? Oh, it's good. You know, no, Trevor, you know, it's like, oh, say hi to your mom. Like, I don't know how you could have that conversation. I can't, I can't even fathom that. After murdering. Mm -mm. When she returned home, it is believed that she staged the scene to make it look like it had been burglarized. Then she called dispatch of Jefferson PD, pretending to not know where her husband was. According to Heavy.com, Pastor Jeff Brown testified that Cindy Reese frequently spoke about wanting her husband dead and once asked him to hire a hitman. Brown said he did try to hire two men, but they turned him down. Oh, why are you throwing that in there? What? Like to make yourself sound even worse. Oh my God. He also said that Cindy frequently brought up wanting to poison her husband. The whole trial became a massive he said, she said. The lovers turned on each other to save their own asses. Jeff denied ever having a sexual relationship with Cindy, while Cindy claimed that Jeff wanted to kill Michael because she loved him and didn't want to divorce him. She claimed that Jeff hid inside their home, waiting for them to arrive so that he could shoot Michael with Cindy's gun. So That's she's some tr- bullshit because you would have told the truth from the beginning. She was just trying to paint it like, oh, I actually chose Michael. I don't want to be with you. And he just couldn't yeah. like accept That's, that fate. Yeah. So the big question for like sane people is why not just divorce them? Instead That's of murder, what I was gonna say is because if he's already willing to divorce his wife, then why is murder coming into play with the second couple? There's just no reason. I know. And if Cindy wanted to be with Jeff and start a family and life with him, then you know why not simply divorce him? But she said that her family didn't believe in divorce, so it wasn't an option. And like I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that they don't like believe in murder either. So I think that's a really good assumption. Yeah, I feel like divorce is like lesser of two evils. Also affairs. Like, I feel like if they don't agree with the divorce, they probably don't agree with your no, fucking affair either. It's like pick pick your sin, air quotes on it, and stick with the one that doesn't kill anybody. Every, someone's going to get hurt regardless. Choose the one where they can pick up Move and on. meet someone else yeah. and have a happy life without you. You suck anyways. And it's important to note that Michael did have a $50,000 life insurance policy and Cindy was named the beneficiary. So... After the Harold Hunthorne thing, I like to include that because I think there was a little bit of motive, financially speaking. For sure. It wasn't just anti-divorce crap. Yeah. During the trial, the court was able to listen to the 911 tapes. As the call was connecting with the dispatch, you can clearly hear her saying, my phone is about to die, to someone in the background. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Not a sharp crayon. (laughs) She's not the sharpest crayon. Not the brightest bulb. According to cell phone records, it was Jeff Brown that was in the house with her. After only 90 minutes of deliberation, Cindy Reese was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Jeff Brown received 20 years due to his plea deal. He is currently serving a sentence at Staten Correctional Facility in Wetumpka, Alabama. After serving less than three years of her sentence, Cindy was transferred from Julia Tutwiler Prison to a work release program in <gasps> Birmingham, Alabama. What? So she was now living walking distance from Michael's family and they were never notified. <gasps> they weren't like, hey, by the way, she's getting out of prison. She's going to do this like work program like right by your house. Oh my God. But this move received an overwhelming amount of backlash. People were pissed. Yeah. And she course. was sent back to the women's prison. It was oh. a very temporary thing. People were wow. not having it. That's incredible. That's awesome. I was like torn. Um, maybe I'll, I'll end the story with a Jerry Vincent quote because I love him so much. Yeah, he's got some great one-liners. He really does. But I'll end with I'll I'll do this one first. Okay. Chief Deputy Randy Christian stated, 
I think we all understand matters of the hearts and the ups, downs, ebbs, and flows of relationships. What we can't understand and will never understand is someone getting so twisted, dark, and lost that they believe cold-blooded murder is the answer. Yet here we are with three families ruined because of dark hearts, stupidity, and extreme selfishness. What a great way to just sum that up. I know because it showed compassion to confusion and just like the way that relationships, it's like, it's not always going to be this like fairy tale situation. Right. But you have to be a good human. I really liked the way he worded that. Yeah. But now in a not so wonderfully worded Jerry Vincent quote that I <laughs> like as well. And I, I feel like this guy definitely prepped. He's like, this is my time on camera and I'm going to make the most of it. Everything I've ever wanted to say, I'm going to say it now. It's good and evil. That's exactly what it is. It was on a Wednesday night, wasn't it? Sitting in church, knowing I'm fixing to kill my husband. That's just evil. That's just evil. <laughs> I love when he says fixing. Oh, I'm fixing. <laughs> That's something I need to like, I want to implement into my vocab now. I'm fixing to do it. I'm fixing for some pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> or is that? No, it or no, be like, I'm, I'm fixing to have some pancakes. I'm fiending. I'm fiending for pancakes. No, you just said you wanted to use the word fixin'. I know, but I was just like, that didn't sound right to me. So I was like, is it a different F word? But And that is the story of the horrific murder of sweet Michael Reese. It just goes to show like low IQ people do low IQ shit. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just so sad. You literally don't need to have an affair. You can just be like, I don't want to be with you anymore or I want to separate or what's really crazy to some people. You could just be like, I want to sleep with somebody else and maybe your partner's going to be okay with it. Like, can I do it too? And then Yeah, there's plenty of things. There's so many ways around being secretive and hurting your partner (sighs) in that way. But Ashley, you're not factoring the whole thing of like, they like the secrecy. (laughs) Like that's the part that I think it's hot to them. It's like, I I don't think it isn't, it isn't just sex. It's about the- you know, someone desiring and it's a secret, like a secret. It's, it's basically an escape from taboo. real life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're living in a yeah. movie okay. and these people wanted to live in a movie. So yeah. it's disgusting. It's all really upsetting. Doesn't make it right, obviously. And uh, that's where I'm done. I'm done now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All well, right. That was good. Thank you. You're welcome. Love you. <laughs> Love you. Bye. You're welcome. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katarina. See you next week.